For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Epic Realms. Today, our guest is none other than the co-creator of Pathfinder, Starfinder, James <laughs> Sutter. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Quick question for you. Where did you start it in, in with Paizo fairly early in your life? Where yeah. did you, did, were you a gamer first? Were you a writer first? Did you, what, what, where did you I kind mean, of start can off you even separate those two? You know, all of the above. But uh, no, I started playing role-playing games in fifth grade. I actually, my fifth grade teacher taught some of us how to play Dungeons and Dragons first edition, like on, on our lunch breaks. So uh, I, I owe Mr. Tivnan the, my, uh, my career. Um, but, you know, it was, it was this great, situation where he taught us how to play and we played a campaign with him over lunches for like it felt like forever it was probably a couple of weeks um but then he was like all right now you've seen a role-playing game go make your own role-playing games and so we spent the rest of the school year designing our own you know role-playing games now that we had the concept so i was really lucky because even from the very beginning my introduction to role-playing games was that it was this creative medium and that you could do whatever you wanted and make your own. Um, and I, you know, I'd always wanted to be a writer. You know, I can remember as soon as I could read, I wanted to write, you know, I had, before I had a computer, I had a typewriter and would sit there, you know, banging out little uh, starts to novels. Um, but so, you know, I played role-playing games all up through high school and whatnot, and then moved away to college. Uh, and, you know, when I lost my group, obviously moving away to college, uh, I got really into music and was kind of doing other stuff and hadn't really thought about, I mean, who thinks of role-playing games as a career move, right? You know, it, it didn't seem, it never occurred to me that somebody made these things for yeah. a living. Uh, so I went into journalism instead. So when I was in college, I started writing for the college newspaper and doing a lot of, you know, uh, music journalism and just gonzo stuff where I would go have adventures and write about it. And then I got out of college and realized that uh, if you want to be in journalism, nobody actually wants to pay you to have gonzo adventures. <laughs> and so I started uh, working for some local, you know, small town newspapers and was thinking, oh, I'm not sure that I want to be doing this. Um, and then I discovered that Dungeon and Dragon magazines uh, as well as amazing stories, were all based out of, uh, I live in Seattle, so it was just one of the suburbs here. And I went, oh, that sounds amazing. So I saw they were hiring for an editor-in-chief for amazing stories. So I sent in an email, and I'm, I've just graduated college. I'm 20 years old at this time. I can't even drink yet. Right. 
And uh, I sent an email to <laughs> the CEO of the company saying, hey, I see you're hiring an editor-in-chief. I am totally unqualified, but here's what I can do. And, right. you know, fortunately I had, a, you know, I'd been doing journalism, you know, I was all in on journalism for a couple of years. So I had a nice portfolio of, you know, a hundred articles I'd written, something like that. And so fortunately, Lisa Stevens, the, uh, the owner of Paizo said, you know, uh, we don't have any, any editorial positions, but why don't you come in and, you know, do an interview and we'll just see what we got. And uh, apparently she liked my, my chutzpah uh, because she gave me a job and the only job they had was finding images for their web store of products at a Nikola JPEG. So I literally was just a human Google going through and collating images. But so are you getting got, stuff that was like made by other people or are you finding stuff from within their own resources yeah, for no, images? So what they, they had just started uh, running the Paizo web store, which carried, you know, Paizo stuff, but also all these other games. So they had these huge lists of games from their distributor that they could okay. sell, but they didn't have images. It was just spreadsheets. And so my job was to go through and for, you know, every ISBN or, you know, whatever, find a picture of that game somewhere okay. on, on the company's website and just put those in a folder and give them to the give them to Paizo. So really like the most menial labor you right. could possibly have. Uh, but, you know, it got me in the door. And then from there, I became the intern uh, for uh, the magazines. And then from the internship, I became the customer service rep, um, the only customer service rep back in that day. So if, if you called about your subscription to the magazines between, you know, in that year that I was doing that, you, you got me. Um, <laughs> And then eventually, but at the same time, I was also still, you know, I was still writing, I was still doing journalism, I was still trying to get started with fiction, um, and having a little bit of success there. And so finally, I was able to kind of say, uh, you know, to, to Lisa and Eric and everybody who was in charge, like, look, I need to be an editor, you know, that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, I could go do it at this, you know, the small town newspaper over here, which I don't want to do or I could do it here. Um, and fortunately they went ahead and created an assistant editor position for me on uh, Dungeon Magazine. And that was how I got started working on RPGs. And then that turned into, you know, from Dungeon, we created Pathfinder. And then I was, you know, eventually running the Pathfinder Tales line, you know, helped create that. And then of course I got to be the creative director on Starfinder, which was great. So yeah, I was at Paizo for, 13 years before I uh, finally left a couple of years ago to write full time. Okay. Well, when you were, when you were growing up, how, how was your family with gaming? Because some families are like, eh, that gaming stuff isn't, isn't the place to go or were they supportive? Oh, my family was totally cool with it. Like I, I'm sure they didn't understand it at yeah, all, yeah. you know, but my, <laughs> my family was always very supportive of all my different creative endeavors, even if they didn't get it. You know, I had, I had a pop punk band in high school and I'm sure that both my parents probably have permanent hearing loss from us <laughs> practicing, but you know, they were always very supportive even when I look back and I cringe at the sort of songs we were writing and the fact that my parents had to listen to them, but you know, they were always, uh, they were always very happy that I was doing something I was passionate about. That's great. That's, that's really fun. I, there are so many people there. I hear so many horror stories of people that have families that aren't. And every time I hear someone that's like, no, they're super supportive. And that's, that always warms my heart. That's always great to hear, but it's always nice to know because people, 
people sometimes don't realize, you know, that, that things aren't always easy for everyone. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had uh, one of my early bandmates um, was also somebody that I gamed with. Uh, and his parents were very religious. And one day he came home and they had thrown all of his, you know, D&D books and Shadowrun books in the fireplace. And that was just gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, it's a bummer to hear, but what can you do? I mean, you can't, yeah. when, you're, when you're a kid, you just, you just have to say that sucks and move on. And hopefully he got, you know, more, um, hopefully he got more, more books again later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really cognizant of how lucky I got, you know, starting there, but at every point in my career, I've had a lot of really lucky breaks uh, along the way, which is probably, probably true of most people who have careers in, you know, in gaming or writing, like it takes a solid chunk of luck along with everything else. Right. Did you, so you were there kind of when, and I don't, I don't mean to make it sound like it, because some people hear the word third party gaming as like a negative but it's not to me i think third-party gamers gaming content creators are amazing um and so there was a point where paizo was kind of mostly third-party stuff for you know three five three five before they started doing pathfinder so you were there at that when it changed oh yeah i'd i'd been doing uh i'd been on the magazines for a couple of years through uh paizo losing the magazine license Mm -hmm. um so you know we had been doing the magazines then those went away and we went, oh God, like, what are we going to do now? So we started making, you know, supplements that were for Dungeons and Dragons through the open gaming license. Mm-hmm. And then I was there when the open gaming license, uh, you know, it didn't go away, but it changed in such a way for fourth edition that there was some stuff about the contracts that made it right. really not a good business strategy. Yeah. Um, you know, whether you lo- loved fourth edition or hated it, like my understanding is that the contracts made it not super viable yeah um as a business model and so uh you know we started we decided to make pathfinder instead uh because we could still do that based on the 3.5 uh open gaming license and so we made pathfinder as kind of you know 3.75 as everybody called it at the time and it took off and that gave us the ability to then roll forward with you know we'd already for maybe a year or so been creating you know, our own adventure paths, our own setting, you know, we'd already begun creating sort of the world of Pathfinder, but then we finally had the rules set also so that we could kind of own the whole thing. And uh, yeah, it took off and we kind of never looked back. Right. Well, for those that are listening, the, the, the great thing for, you know, people that are older, there are people that don't like change and Mm -hmm. the, the, the shift from the shift for fourth edition was very much like the shift from second edition to third edition. And it was just like, do we want to get rid of all of these rules that we know and start over? But Pathfinder's like, no, you don't. <laughs> it's it's right. pretty much the same. And so it was really easy to adopt and be like, well, there's still all this great content for the system that I, that I know. Well, and of course, you know, the, the grand irony in the circle of life in the game industry, of course, is that now Pathfinder's in its second edition, right? Like, right. you know, of, for a certain style of game, the addition cycle is inevitable because you just, without it, you sort of run out of books to publish. And so you kind of have two business models in RPGs. One is sort of the, you do a couple of books for a game and that's all you ever do. And the other one is you put out a ton of books, but 
that can become unwieldy and you end up having to sort of reboot and revise with these addition changes right. every X number of years. Right. Um, and, you know, there's pluses and minuses to both sides, but especially as a business, if you start putting out a lot of books and you've got a staff to make all those books, you kind of got to keep doing it. Right. right. Um, or you have to go like the money cook games route where you're just always doing new games, which is perfectly valid. And they like, they produce amazing stuff. Um, but it's a, it's a different business model. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. For sure. You, um, you were quite a bit when Pathfinder came out on kind of helping build the world and build the system. I mean, didn't, uh, yeah. you did quite a bit, like, didn't you, like you started with a gazetteer, if I'm not mistaken, and started working on maps and like flushing out the stuff. Oh, well, I mean, that. I was, we were all, uh, I mean, there was, was obviously only, it's a team effort, but yeah, there was only a handful of us though, on the uh, sort of editorial development design side, there were half a dozen of us. Okay. Um, uh, maybe, maybe as many as 10, if you're bringing in all the art department and sort of the executives. Um, but you know, it was all hands on deck. Everybody was doing stuff. I was always more interested in the setting side than the rules side. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I can do crunch, but I dramatically prefer the story. Yeah. The story, the world, the cultures, you know, the monsters. Um, so yeah, so I was, I was right in the thick of it with everybody, you know, as we were, you know, we had, you know, these big maps that were mostly blank and we had to fill them in, you know? And so I, uh, I loved my favorite articles ever were sort of those early gazetteers where we didn't know hardly anything about anything. Right. right. So like, for instance, in the third volume of uh, Pathfinder Adventure Path, uh, you know, Varicia was kind of the heart of the setting in those mm -hmm. early days. Um, and that was something where the map of Varicia was from James Jacobs, uh, who had, he had this map and he had a couple of locations, but that was kind of all he had. So he handed that to me and said, okay, write a gazetteer and put in another 30 locations. And so I basically just got to build everything in Varicia that wasn't one of his, you know, tentpole things. Yeah. Um, I just got to fill it up with craziness. And then <laughs> after I turned it in, he and uh, Wes Schneider sat me down because it was really in the early games of the days of the setting. We didn't know a lot of what the world was kind of going to be so they sat me down and they were like look this is great but you're going to have to slow your roll on stuff because like i think i might have had i had like a space elevator in there yeah. you know i had <laughs> it was pretty gonzo but um but yeah like i got to do that i got to write a lot of do a lot of the development of you know kionan the elven nation or uh the orc nation of belkson you know i got to just have these wide swaths of the world to just play with. And that's always been my favorite, you know, and, and that continued, you know, throughout the game's life, you know, like later on, I got to basically design the whole, uh, the first world, like the fairy realm, or one that was a pet project of mine um, that turned out to be more auspicious than I had expected was um, I did a book called Distant Worlds, which was uh, Pathfinder's solar system. So Pathfinder had focused almost entirely on this one planet called Galarian. And I, you know, being a huge sci-fi nerd, I was like, well, what about the other planets in this solar yeah. system? And so, you know, the rest of the staff were like, sure, go run with it. Not and that so, that wasn't a precursor to something else later down the road. <laughs> well, th that's the thing. So I got to like design this whole solar system and people got really excited about it. And then a few years later, when we decided we wanted to do Starfinder, that was sort of the foundation of the setting like that Pathfinder solar system from that book 
became the basis that we used to develop the Pact Worlds for Starfinder. And so I feel like my whole career has been these great chances to like take something that started as a small project and then if people get excited about it, like exploded into something much larger. Yeah. You know, is like the city of Karamaga was another one where like it started as a little throwaway section in uh in the back of an adventure, and now it has source books and a novel and comics and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, when you when you're going through and you're building, say you're putting together a book, say you're doing like the NPC codex or or something like that, and you look in the cover and you see like the list of the credits of the people that worked on the book. How much? How do you guys split up? who works on what, like, is it like, here's a chapter, here's like an underlying story or, you know, things like that. How do you guys separate who's working on what in one of those books? Well, you know, it depends on the book. One thing people might not realize is that actually the writing for something uh, like a book at Paizo, and I think Wizards does a lot of this too, but a bunch of game companies, the books are usually written freelance. So somebody in-house will create an outline of exactly what they want in the book. You know, they're the, whoever the head developer is. And then they'll go to a bunch of freelancers and say, hey, would you like to write part of this book? And then they'll parcel out like, okay, you do this chapter, you do this chapter. And maybe you have somebody who's you know really good at monsters. So you have them do the monster section, but you've got somebody else who's really good at uh, you know rules design. So you get them to do rules. And so usually uh, you know, books were sort of divvied up that way, just in terms of who was available and who specialized in different things. But my favorites were always the ones where, uh, you know, I would get permission to just do a book myself um, and say, hey, if you give me this, you know, let me do a source book on the first world and I'll just do the whole thing. You know, I'll do all, you know, every part of it and then I'll just turn it in and it'll be done. Um, and, you know, as much as I love working on a team, there's something really fun to be able to take a subject you're passionate about and just cover it all yourself yeah. too. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's a, it's a push and pull because also so many times uh, the best stuff comes out of those meetings of the minds, you know, and working at Paizo or at Wizards or anywhere, uh, you know, some of the, some of my colleagues are like the most creative people I've ever, you know, I've ever worked with. Right. Like I love, you know, I don't want to work on something about hell if Wes Schneider isn't involved, right? right? Because he's so good at that stuff. So, and that's true of kind of everybody. When somebody has, say you've, you're coming up with something for first worlds and then somebody else, you know, three years later is like, Oh, I want to write this little addendum. Do they, do they like come to you? Do you guys like, how do you guys make sure that everything stays kind of cohesive? Like, obviously there's always going to be crossover where there's contradiction and then you got to mm -hmm. fill in those gaps, but. Well, I mean, it depends. <laughs> it depends who you are, right? Like when I was the creative director on Starfinder, uh, I got to, you know, uh, help make all the decisions about stuff. Um, now I'm, I'm nobody. I'm a freelancer. So, yeah. you know, when I accept an assignment for something at Paizo, even though I was there for so many years, even if I'm writing about something that I built in the first place, like it's not mine anymore. Yeah. It belongs to someone else. So I have to do uh, whatever they say I should be doing. Um, but I think that for the most part, what people try to do, uh, unless they're actively retconning something, I think folks try to really look at the canon of what's been published. You know, something that I always, a maxim I always lived by is no headcanon. You know, if it, if it hasn't been published or at least written down internally and circulated, 
it doesn't exist because otherwise you end up in all these places where somebody publishes something and you go, why did you say that the York King, you know, had a red hat when he's supposed to have a blue hat? And they say, well, you didn't write that anywhere. Right. And like, you know, you can really end up hurt, shooting yourself in the foot if you don't, uh, if you let your imagination trump what is actually in the books. Yeah. So, um, you know, to keep track of canon and stuff, you know, at times there was uh, people actively where that was their main job, you know, just tracking wow. all the canon. Mike, I have a question for you. And this kind of leads, will lead into, you know, something else down the road. How much did you work on the Planar Adventures book? Because, um, I, go ahead. I go worked ahead. a little bit on Planar Adventures, um, but not a whole ton. Uh, because I believe that was right when Starfinder was happening as well, or the early days of that. So uh, I couldn't bite off nearly as much as I wanted to out of that one. Um, but I definitely remember working on it. Uh, I can't remember if I wrote Heaven or if I just gave a bunch of design notes for Heaven. I think I might've written it. Um, one thing that's weird about this... <laughs> Of after you know so many years in the in the industry there's a lot of stuff where i literally don't remember what i've written mm -hmm. um you know i'll look at a book and see my name in it and go god what what did, what I, did do? I do or i'll go through <laughs> my old files and find like like i was just looking the other day for something and came across a bunch of monsters i'd written for uh the first pathfinder bestiary and i had no memory of any of them you know it was stuff like oh I guess I, I guess I wrote the cockatrice. Okay, cool. You know, so uh, I don't remember which planes I wrote for Planar Adventures versus talked about, but I know I did something for it. The reason that I asked that is because you came up with two Pathfinder novels. Yes, yes. And when pretty much anybody I've talked to that's read it goes, you, there, there isn't a book out there uh, uh uh you know a role-playing type novel out there that deals with the planes in such a way where it's so complex but it's explained so easily and it makes it so fun to go on the ride along oh, and, I, and, I, and I thought to myself how the hell did he did, did you balance the you know all of that and still tell a really great cohesive story when you got somebody that's jumping the planes and well, that was it was that was the fun of it Right. Like, you know, that was uh, originally when I, you know, first got the nod to write, uh, to pitch a Pathfinder novel to Eric Mona, the publisher, um, because, you know, I was, I was running the line at the time. Actually, the way it happened is, uh, so I was running the Pathfinder novels line. And uh, as a result, I figured I can never write a Pathfinder novel because that would be like, you know, self-dealing basically, you know, I, if I'm going to get a novel contract, I want to earn it. You know, I right. was very idealistic at that point. Um, and uh, so one day uh, I was printing off some short stories uh, of my own on the office printer, um, which I shouldn't have been doing. And uh, <laughs> Eric, uh, I walked into the copy room and found Eric was sitting there looking at one um and i went oh god but my name wasn't on it and so he said like oh who's you know yeah you should get whoever wrote this to write a pathfinder book like this is really good and i was like well that was that was mine uh and he goes oh well then you should write one and i was like well but that that wouldn't really be kosher because i'm running it and he's like i'm your boss if i tell you to write one 
write a novel. Right. <laughs> I'm like, nice. yes, sir. Nice. But I, so then I, uh, you know, I suddenly I'm going to pitch this novel and really figuring out how, what I wanted to write about was just me taking all of my toys or like all of the toys from Pathfinder that I loved the most and saying, how can I use all these? Right. Cause I loved the concept of uh, atheism in a fantasy world right. and like the nation Rahadum, which is sort of Pathfinder's atheist nation. So I wanted to play with that, but I also really wanted to do, you know, a Planescape book, you know, I wanted to do Outer Plains stuff. Um, and so like cramming all of that together was how I came up with this character, um, Salim, who's, you know, basically a Blade Runner style atheist detective, like, you know, a priest hunter who makes some bad decisions and ends up working for the death goddess, tracking down uh, souls that have gone missing in the afterlife. And so once I figured that out, I went, oh, okay, now I can go to all those places I wanted to go. Um, and it was really fun, especially because some of those places just didn't have that much information yet. And so there was, you know, sometimes I would have a great resource, like in the second book, uh, you know, minor spoilers. Um, in, if they haven't so the read it are, yet, they should <laughs> Death's Heretic and The Redemption Engine are the two novels. But in The Redemption Engine, they go to both heaven and hell. Um, and so for hell, I had the source book that Wes Schneider had written. Um, and so that was really, that was really easy because I just read through his book and, you know, literally highlighted things where it's like, oh my God, I got to hit that. I got to hit that. And then tried to figure out how to incorporate them into the story. But uh, for heaven, there wasn't a lot of stuff. And so I got to make up a bunch more stuff. Uh, which then later, you know, after first appearing in the novel, later came into the game world through the various source books. Um, and that was something I always really loved with the novel line was that interplay of letting uh, the game world inform the fiction, but also the fiction inform the game world. And that was, a, you know, it was a, it was a balance that I think in the early days made people kind of nervous because I remember a lot of conversations about how various uh, fiction lines not to be named had, you know, quote unquote, ruined the the campaign settings that they went along with. Right. Uh, because they, you know, blew stuff up or wanted to make these big changes that the game side people didn't want. Right. Uh, but I think the fact that I had been so involved with the development of the game world and I'd been, and I still was, even as I was running the novel line, I was still a developer, you know, working on all the setting books. And because I'd been there with James Jacobs and Eric and, you know, uh, Jason Bullman and everybody building stuff, they trusted that I wasn't going to, you know, shatter all the toys. Right. And so uh, it really, it worked out really nicely, I think. Yeah, it's, it was, like I said, out of all of the novels, and I've gone through all of them, I do them on audiobooks. So the narrator for your books was also amazing. You really got, oh, the feel, yeah. you really got the feel for the characters. I don't want to say ethnicity, um, but he kind of took like almost like a, I don't want to say a, he took kind of an accent yeah, on yeah. that really fit in my mind what a Rahadun person would sound like. Yeah. And so it was, you know, actually all the narrators for all the Pathfinder tales. Uh, and maybe you're the guy to ask, how do you go about when, it, you know, when Audible comes forward? Is that on your end or is that from well, the book publisher's company? So I did get to work. Um, I get, did get to be the point person working on uh, that Audible arrangement, which was really nice. It actually, the whole thing came out of an interview. Uh, I was doing an interview uh, with, I think, the Publishers Weekly podcast um, talking about tie-in fiction. 
And then later I got an email from somebody at Audible saying, hey, we just heard you on this podcast. Uh, we think maybe you should have an audio deal for the Pathfinder novels. I went, oh, okay. And so we, you know, we worked out a contract and they published all of the Pathfinder Tales novels in audio format. And they they made them actually. Uh, so they went and found all the narrators and everything. And, okay. you know, I, I worked closely with them trying to, you know, get get them all the pronunciations and everything. And we got approval over everything as the license holder. But uh, yeah, they they saw what we were doing and said, we think that could be really big. Um, and it worked out great. Like people really love those books. Yeah, they were. I, I loved them. I mean, that's just that's well, just me. <laughs> and like I said, I, we got a, we got a couple people that are probably in chat or whatnot that, you know, have read all of the books you know, all of the Pathfinder tales cover to cover when you're going through and you're picking uh, writers to pen a book. And I know we've had a couple people on, we've had Chris Jackson on here and we've had oh, Chris is great. On here. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've talked with uh, Dave gross on a, another podcast mm -hmm. that I worked with some time ago and they, you know, everybody kind of has a little bit different story at how they got in. How did you have a, uh, a process for finding and vetting writers? Did you just yeah. say, hey, this guy's a writer. He He's really awesome. We'll bring him in. Or was it different for everyone? I mean, I was very, uh, as, so I was very lucky in that Eric, the publisher, you know, when we said that we were going to do this, he basically just said, go, you're in charge. Um, and I, I had been very lucky from the beginning at Paizo. Um, I had gotten sort of tapped as the fiction guy all the way back in, uh, when we first launched Pathfinder Adventure Path, we had this section in the back called uh, the Pathfinder's Journal, which was like serialized fiction. Um, and I got put in charge of that because I was the only person at the time who had ever published fiction, you know, and not very much. I'd sold like a short story or two, yeah. Yeah, maybe three. Um, but, you know, we were all very young. And so they were like, well, you've got, you've got three stories. And I wrote... Uh, the third Pathfinder journal and uh, Jacobs and Wes, who were kind of running Pathfinder Adventure Path at the time, said, you know what? Okay, you're in charge. The fiction is yours. Go. Um, and then people really liked that. So when we did the novel line, Eric just gave me carte blanche to go out and find folks, basically. And uh, I really tried, I, I felt very strongly that tie-in fiction sometimes gets a bad rap. Um, you know, people see see a logo on the top of the book and they think that, oh, well, that must be, you know, garbage. Um, even though so many of us came to fantasy and science fiction right, through right. those, through Star Wars and Forgotten Realms and right. all of those, you know, licensed books. And so I had a real passion early on for making sure that you know, we would be top-notch uh, tie-in fiction. Like I wanted to only publish tie-in fiction that was as good as any creator-owned book. Um, and so I was super choosy. Um, and so it was this mix of, you know, there was the pool of people who were established tie-in authors, folks like, you know, Dave Gross and Elaine Cunningham and, you know, who, who'd been around and done that for many years in the gaming industry. Uh, but then there were a lot of folks, I started going to conventions uh, that focused more on science fiction, fantasy publishing just to meet folks, because I knew there are a bunch of great authors out there who are gamers, right? right? You know, they're they're playing the stuff. So, like, perhaps we could get some people that way. And that was how I started to meet 
uh, folks like, um, you know, like Leanne Merciel or Tim Pratt or, uh, you know, um, I mean, basically everybody in there who hadn't written tie-in before was somebody who at some point I had talked to them and they had said, you know, I'm a big uh, role-playing games fan. And I had said, well, perhaps you would like to write in this world, right? And, you know, we started getting, you know, big names. I mean, we had Sam Sykes write a, write a book um, when he was just starting to blow up. Um, so it was really fun to be able to go find authors who had gotten established doing their own thing and then bring them into our world. Um, and I tried, I also tried really hard to make it a good experience for them because sometimes, I mean, one of the reasons, and this is a, you know, dirty secret in the industry, but one of the reasons why a lot of tie-in fiction isn't very good is that it's written under abysmal conditions. You know, I know people who have written for huge properties and they'll tell me the story of like, oh yeah, and then I had one month to write that novel or something, yeah. right? Or two months. And I always thought like, how could you possibly expect quality work under those conditions? So I yeah. would, you know, find somebody and I would give them the time they need. You know, if it takes a year for you to write the novel, great, we'll schedule you a year, you know? And I would work hand in hand with them to make sure that, you know, it wasn't just me handing them a six foot tall stack of rule books and saying, right. get it right. You know, I was always there to help figure out where in the world uh, would be right for them. You know, like, what are you interested in? Okay, let's put you in this corner of the world and like, here's how this, you know, this magic system works, et cetera. Um, and really just tried to make it as, as painless a process as possible. And I think as a result, we got some really incredible books. Yeah. I mean, you, uh, you mentioned Dave Gross um, and, you know, he wrote uh, Prince of Wolves, which was our first novel. Uh, and I feel like that really set the bar. You know, he wrote this uh, sort of fantasy Sherlock Holmes uh, right. thing. And, or buddy, you know, buddy, I, buddy cop Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was just so good that uh, that really made me say, okay, this can, this can work. We can have some really incredible novels. So speaking of that, you mentioned you didn't want to just set down rule books in front of people and be like, this is this, but it still seemed like a lot of those books uh, definitely followed, followed rules. And I know oh, they I, have to, and I know some, some people said, yeah, that like I did that because that's what I wanted to do. But then there've been other times I've heard where, you know, obviously like there's, there's the whole idea that I've seen on the Pathfinder Paizo forums of like, well, what class and level do you think that XYZ character is? Mm -hmm. And some of them, you can look at them and go like, okay, this is, this is exactly what they are. You can almost point out their levels and what feats they took. But then there's others such as in Dave Gross's book where it's like, well, maybe you can't do that, but it still makes sense. Obviously I'm not saying anything. Yeah. So. Well, and that's the thing, you know, we always said you don't want to hear the dice rolling, but you also have to know, like, it mm -hmm. has to be consistent because, you know, people would often say like, well, why do I have to, can't we bend this rule? You know, especially around magic. I feel like magic is where it shows up most obviously, because, you know, if somebody just punches somebody in a bar in your book, it, it can be hard to tell if that person's a fighter or a barbarian or what, right. but if they cast a fireball you know what level they are, you right. know, at least at minimum. Right. Um, and so people would sometimes be like, oh, why do I have to do this? And the answer is that these are the natural laws of the world. It's not a rule because it's in a game book. 
like the rules in the game books are attempting to simulate the reality of this setting that we've got. And so both the novels and the rules are trying to describe the same thing. Right. And that was, uh, that was always really important to me. And it bit me in the ass too. Like I had to write, oh, I had to rewrite an entire uh, scene, an entire chapter of uh, the redemption engine at, you know, fairly late in the process because uh, the, yeah, I think, I can't remember what it was, but it was something like, you know, I had someone casting hold person on an angel and, you know, you only works on, humanoids and angels or outsiders you know that kind of thing and i i absolutely felt that uh that drive to just bend the rules but you can't you got to find creative workarounds and uh and i think that people really appreciated that about that line i i agree i agree there have been you know and dnd has a lot of books out there and mm-hmm. a lot of them don't necessarily follow that kind of guideline, but I think it's fun. And I've heard from people that I've talked to, or just, you know, I've been to conventions and have lots of friends that all say the same thing. Like, it's really cool that we can look at it and go, okay, uh, 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 well, I can't remember his name, the the alchemist, the Tim, Tim Pratt's book, like he did this and he has this. Oh yeah, yeah, he exactly. Has, he has this and this, and it's really cool to see how creative the writer can be you know, given this set of rules and still make it really fun. Or like I said, like Chris Jackson's, you know, stuff with his, like we, we joke a lot when we get to the second book, like we had no idea that what's her name was a sorcerer and that cat was her familiar in the Chris Jackson book. And that's just amazing. And so like, yeah. yeah. And I loved, you know, it was really nice getting those people who were, you know, they were really good authors, but then also they were gamers. And so they would, you know, I'd get the book and it would have a little comment off to the side being like, okay, so here's how I you know, built this and tweaked these rules. Um, and it made my life as the editor so much nice. easier that they knew it so well. Uh, but yeah, I think that's why it's so important to have a tight relationship. I mean, in this case, you know, the editorial side and the game side were one person, which was me, which right. was, uh, I think, really useful for that line. And later on, you know, we also had like, Chris Carey uh, helped run that. Um, you know, nowadays I, they're still doing uh, web fiction, even though the Pathfinder Tales line is sadly no more. Um, you know, they're doing fiction uh, on their website, and that's being run by Mark Moreland. And like, it's the same thing. People who are game developers and editors, it's just much easier to get it right than the way licensing normally happens, which is you have, you know, fiction book company on one hand and you know, a uh, game company on the other hand, and they're trying to, you know, both sides are trying to sort of work together. But if you don't, if you aren't really steeped in the lore, I think it makes it so much harder. Yeah, definitely. Whose idea was it to take and make Pathfinder Society Chronicles for the books? Oh, that I'm sure that came out of the, uh, you mean the, uh, the like the tie-ins? And yeah. Stuff? You, so like every time, like if you did the Pathfinder Society role-playing at conventions right. or whatever, and you had your characters, you could go on the website and you could download a chronicle mm-hmm. if you owned the book. I can't remember if that was if that came from Eric or uh, Eric Mona or if that came from the Pathfinder Society team. But uh, you know, the the truth of a game company is that for all the work that you spend trying to uh, you know make something cool, you spend an equal amount of <laughs> work trying to get anybody to pick it up. Um, and so that was one of the ways that we tried to push people to like there is a novel line. It's good. Go check it out. You know, right. um, 
So that started as a marketing thing. Okay. Well, I'm glad that they kept it up because it was really fun to see every time a new book would come out. It's like, well, I wonder what the Chronicle is going to be for these books. Yeah, yeah. It's always the, the, the fun little thing with that. So what did, if you can say, I don't know if you can say or not, what yeah. did happen to the Pathfinder Tale series? How did that stop? Why did that stop? Oh, if you can talk about yeah, it. If I mean, you can't, I, can, I understand. I can speak in general terms. Um, but basically what happened is we had run the Pathfinder Tales line where we were publishing it ourselves for several years. Um, I can't remember exactly how many, many, maybe four. Um, and then we made a deal with Tor, which is a division of Macmillan Publishing, mm -hmm. to have them essentially be the publisher, but really it was more like a distribution and packaging kind of deal because we were still making the books, but then we would hand it off to them to sell them. Um, and the whole reason for that was just that there was so much stuff that we were trying to do at Paizo. And as much as I loved the novels, uh, you know, the return on a novel was not nearly as good as the return on a game book, right? Okay. Because we could publish, you know, a new hardcover and sell tens of thousands of copies, you know, ver and have big margins versus, you know, paperback novels. There's just not a whole lot of money to be made there. Yeah. And so we tried to do a partnership. We did that for a couple of years and it just didn't work out. Like the, the partnership between the companies did not was not as fruitful as anybody wanted. And then afterwards, uh, there was just so much stuff going on that Paizo management was like, yeah, we don't want to do novels anymore. And it was crushing, frankly, because I had I had novels in the pipeline. Like mm -hmm. I had already bought novels from including uh, <laughs> some of the biggest name authors that the line would have ever had. You know, folks that uh, I won't say who it was, but... Uh, you know, there were some big folks that I considered major wins uh, that we never got to put out. Oh, um, you know, and, you know, maybe those books will rise again someday. But uh, yeah, it was really, it was a very hard emotional thing. But I also understood, like, there's an opportunity cost with any, you know, with any company, right? And so if you can make way more money doing game books, does it make sense to right. spend staff on something that isn't, giving you that return and especially right. you know at the same time also I, I that i was being the editor of you know the novel line also now i was the creative director of starfinder mm -hmm. so it's <laughs> i was already massively overworked with that so it's not like i could even argue that it was uh that it didn't make sense right uh but it was gutting yeah i can imagine Just put your heart and soul in something and then poof yeah <laughs> but and starfinder you had yeah. Starfinder, which no, you... I mean, fortunately, I had something else to put my heart and soul yeah, into. Yeah, definitely, definitely, something to have that uh, space elevator bring you to. <laughs> yeah, no, and it, and it did. It really, you know. And let me tell you, that one in Varicia was not the last space elevator that I stuck in. Uh, I think <laughs> I think I finally got one in there somewhere, um, but um, maybe the particle accelerator I put in Belkson. But um, yeah, no, and then then we got to do Starfinder, and that was an amazing. Uh, <laughs> amazing and grueling experience um because we had from the day that uh eric you know and the managers pulled the lever and said we are going to do starfinder um to the day it went to the printer i think uh was one year like we had one year to develop wow. everything which is for folks who are not involved in this sort of stuff that's real fast for a book that had to be <laughs> 
like the, the requirements early on were just kind of laughable because we said, okay, it's got to be as robust as Pathfinder. And remember, Pathfinder is already like a 576 page book, something like right. that. Um, it's got to be as robust as Pathfinder, but it's got to be easier to learn than Pathfinder. It also should have a bunch of setting material in there <laughs> and like monsters and like, what if, uh, and you know, of course, starship combat. And so like we had all these must haves and paginated it out. And it was like, guys, this is a thousand page, you know, core right. rule book. And Eric's saying, that's great. We want all of that. And it needs to be shorter than the Pathfinder core rule book. Wow. So, and, um, in, and in a month's time. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was very, I was very fortunate, you know, when, to be honest, when Eric first said, I think the time to do it is now, um, we should do Starfinder because we, everybody had been thinking about it for years. Um, you know, it had always been sort of an idea. Wouldn't it be fun to do a science fantasy game? But it just never seemed like the thing to do. And then when Eric finally said go, uh, the way I remember it, and I could be totally wrong, was that it was on sort of a Friday afternoon. And there were a lot of people saying like, look, this would be super cool, but it can't be done. Like we don't have the resources. We don't have the time to get it out on this schedule. Um, and then, uh, as I recall, I came in on Monday and like went into Eric's office and said, all right, I think this is doable. I think we can do it. Like if you, if you let me take this project, I will make it happen for you. But like, we got to start now. And he said, okay, here you go. And that was how I became creative director on Starfinder. And, wow. uh, yeah, it was, it was some of the most fun and also uh, the most stress I had in my entire career there because we had this massive assignment um, and it was incredibly creatively rewarding, like getting to do that setting chapter, you know, based on uh, distant worlds was a dream, you know, uh, and everybody, it was all hands on deck. There was sort of a core Starfinder team, you know, a couple of folks that uh, that were working with me, but everybody in the company, even if they weren't on the Starfinder team, everybody was writing stuff for the book. Everybody was contributing. Everybody was doing design. Did you guys and have was, to, did you guys have to source uh, ideas like for what you do and don't want from other, you know, space? Cause obviously, you know, Pathfinder is based off of D and D and oh. that kind of stuff. Did you end up sourcing off of like any like Star Trek, Star Wars, RPGs, the, the oh, 10 yeah. million different versions of Star Wars out there? We we totally, you know, we're thinking about all of the different uh, influences we had. You know, everybody was putting together lists of like, uh, what do we want this to be able to do? Because one of the things about Pathfinder, um, people had uh, sort of said at the time and probably still say that like, uh, one of the worst things you can do for a game system is be, uh, for a setting is be generic, right? Um, you know, everybody said, if you try and go too wide, you'll lose focus and you'll lose your audience. Um, which is why a lot of those old campaign settings are very narrowly themed. Mm -hmm. um, so for, but for Pathfinder, we kind of wanted to be everything to everyone. And so we came up with that idea of doing, you know, every nation will kind of be its own campaign setting, right? Yeah. So if you really love Ravenloft and, you know, Gothic horror, well, try Ustalov, you right. know, that kind of thing. And that allowed us to do kind of everything in the same world. And so for Starfinder, we wanted to do the same thing. You know, we said, we want you to be able to tell you know, we want you to be able to tell Star Wars and the fifth element, but also Alien. You know, I, I want you to be able to do every type of science fantasy in this setting. And uh, and I think we, we pulled it off, right? Because we got a rule set that was robust enough. Um, 
while being simpler, um, uh, that people could sort of play all of these different types of science fantasy games. Um, but yeah, we were very aware of everything that came before us, you know, um, especially the idea of setting it in Pathfinder's future. Uh, I mean, it's hard to not think of how like Warhammer and Warhammer 40K kind of did the same thing, right? Um, so yeah, we were we were very aware of those who went before, but also really trying to do our own right our own thing. Definitely. Did there ever come up a time where a conversation was brought up about doing Starfinder novels? Oh, I mean, Starfinder novels. Everybody's everybody has always wanted to do Starfinder novels or uh, Starfinder comics or anything like that. Um, and in the beginning, they're just a there wasn't the capacity and b the pathfinder novel line had just shut down because it wasn't yep, profitable yep. enough so that's what i assume the answer is but i'd be remiss if i didn't ask the question yeah that said i think everybody like <laughs> i think there are a lot of people who would dearly love to see that happen and so you know i've always got my fingers crossed that someday something will come back and i know i i just heard that paizo is now doing sort of a official unofficial fan fiction uh license thing um okay i can't remember the name it's like pathfinder unlimited or starfinder unlimited or something where fans can make can write their own stories set in that those settings and sell them um so they're uh i know they're just oh jesus can we cut that i don't know if that's been announced i think that's been announced I saw no. You know what? I think I saw people tweeting about it, so I'm sure it's been announced. This is <laughs> if my phone starts blowing up, where Eric Rona is like, "Sutter, that was <laughs> shame on you." <laughs> the irony being, like, it's been four years since I worked at Paizo. Mm-hmm. I have zero inside information except for this one thing because somebody <laughs> asked me about. Something. If I spilled the one thing that I know, well, you'll just have to get back to me and when we're done, and and let us know, and I'll have to, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just put a bleep over it so they know yeah. there's something there, but they won't know what it is. Yeah, everybody <laughs> who's in the chat, uh, yeah, actually, if anybody in the chat knows that this has already been announced, please uh, let us know so that I'm not still sweating. <laughs> well, speaking of Starfinder, tell me about, explain to me the Starfinder Alexa game. Cause it's a game, oh. right? Is it a game? Uh, yeah. Hold on. Um, <laughs> weirdly, as soon as I s- said that, like my Twitter popped up. Um, yeah. So the Starfinder Alexa game is, uh, it is a single person or single player RPG in audio format. So the uh, the Alexa team partnered with Paizo and wanted to do uh, basically a role playing video game that was entirely audio. So it's kind of halfway between, you know, a computer RPG and halfway between like an audio choose your own adventure. I was going to say. Um, yeah. And so like, it's fun because it's this thing where you can essentially play through a single player Starfinder adventure, you know, while you're cooking dinner or whatever. You just say, uh, and I'm sure I'm going to set some people off right now, but you say, Alexa, play Starfinder or play the Starfinder game. And it'll pop up with this uh with this whole, you know, high production value game, you know, it's full cast, uh, it's got, you know, sound design and everything. It's really quite slick. Um, and, you know, they got great voice actors, you know, uh, I'm very proud. They got both uh, Laura Bailey and Nathan Fillion um, in there. So, you know, the idea that's like, oh my God, I'm writing dialogue for somebody who was on Firefly. Right, <laughs> like that's, right. 
<laughs> that's a career career goal right there. But uh, yeah, it was it was great, and I was very fortunate that Paizo trusted me to be uh, to be the lead writer on it. So I wrote pretty much the whole game, um, working with the uh, design team over at Alexa, um, and it was really fun. And it's available. Uh, the first chapter is free. So literally, if you have an Alexa or if you have the app on your phone, you can just try it out right now. Nice. Does that open? Are you hoping that that opens the door for you to do more, um, more video game type content? Well, I'd actually, it wasn't the first video game that I'd written. So there, okay. I think uh, I got very lucky because there was a sort of perfect storm of they needed somebody who knew Starfinder really well who had written video games before and who didn't work at Paizo as a day job because they were all super crunched. And so they were like, who, who can do this, but has the ability to do this full time without quitting their job. And so I, I was available. Um, but uh, yeah, I had written, you know, a little bit for the Kingmaker role-playing game. I'd done some stuff for another, uh, an app game called Castle Creep. So I wasn't, I am far from a career video game writer, but I had done enough stuff that I wasn't a total babe in the woods. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it was still, I, every video game project I've done has been different. And so it was fascinating to learn the coding language that they, because originally I was just writing scripts and then pretty soon it was like, you know, it would be easier if I just learned the code you all are using. And so they taught me how to write in their, you know, the markup that they'd made for the Alexa um, and it was really fun. Like I, as somebody who knows very little about coding, that's always seemed like the closest to actual wizardry. Um, <laughs> and so I was very pleased to get a chance to learn my little snippet of it. Um, and the game, I think, turned out great. Great. Well, hopefully I can get a chance to, to try it out with somebody that I know that might have an Alexa or two, because I don't have one. <laughs> yeah. Well, so actually, I don't have one either. And they told me you can download the app just like on your smartphone and play it that way like I'll just the alexa that. app they're gonna they're gonna get a new business person from yeah from that yeah. one two, one I mean, game it's, it's free as far as i think it's free um i could um, be wrong oh, well. but i think it's free I have try it. <laughs> just have to try it and find out yeah is there anything else that you plan on anything else that you can talk about that you are working on coming up that you can uh well you i know, know you I mean, mentioned some things you can't but yeah i mean there's a there's a lot of stuff that uh, I'm working on um, in the, on the game side that I can't really talk about, but you know, mm -hmm. the main reason that I left uh, Paizo, you know, years ago was because I wanted to focus more on fiction. And so I'm still doing creator owned stuff. I don't have anything to announce there just yet, but trying to just write novels. Um, I did recently sell a short story to the horror magazine nightmare. So that'll be out in a couple of, I think maybe in spring. Okay. Um, but uh yeah, in the meantime, I've just been doing that. I've been teaching classes a lot, um, which is nice. If anybody's interested in getting into game writing, um, I got to go on the Writing Excuses podcast and do a masterclass series for them with Cassandra Kaw, uh, who's another excellent game writer and a fiction author. And so that's, uh, if you go to Writing Excuses, that came out mm, a couple months ago. And it's a like eight part series on how to get into the game industry, how to, you know, how to do the job once you're there. And I feel like that's kind of the best, uh, the best distillation uh, of knowledge I could give in a, in, you know, two hours of 
here's drinking from the fire hose on how to make a, a game industry career go. Nice. And you've been doing writing workshops at some cons here and there. Obviously, yeah. COVID happened and all that, but... Yeah, no, I've been teaching at a bunch of different places, mostly online stuff, um, certainly in the last year. But even before that, I like teaching online stuff. So I've, uh, I'll have usually do a couple classes a year for the, uh, the Cat Rambo Academy, which is all online. And that'll be, you know, I'll do world building or the business side of writing or, you know, just stuff about how to survive as a freelancer or you know, how to design a better fantasy pantheon, you know, stuff like that. Um, and that's always really fun. But I, uh, yeah, I don't have so much of a schedule as just every so often I'll open up a class with one of them. Now, the biggest question I have for you ever, do you still get time to role play? I actually, during the pandemic, I have played role played more than a, in the decade beforehand. It's actually... <laughs> There are not a lot of upsides to the pandemic. I would venture to say there are almost none. But the one that there is, is, you know, playing uh, Pathfinder or Starfinder over Skype has been great. You know, I've got a group where everybody's everybody's home and available on Tuesday nights because nothing's going on, you know. And so I did uh, some of the longest running campaigns that I've ever managed to keep together have been in the last two years. So... You prefer it's GMing really or nice. playing? I prefer GMing, yeah. you know, and I, I sort of didn't realize that about myself for many years. And then uh, finally realized like, yeah, being a GM is hard. Uh, you know, it's more work, but it's also more rewarding because you're playing the entire time. And I love that improvisational element. You know, I'm a very uh, low prep, high whimsy game master. You know, <laughs> I... I have flagrant disregard for the rules uh, when I don't know, when I can't remember how something works, you know? Yeah. And I just really love that banter with players. And so, uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I'll, just to throw it back, I'm backtracking a bit here. I probably should have brought this up earlier. Did you have much of a hand in the uh, the card game, the Pathfinder Adventure card game? No, I did a little bit of editing on there. And uh, I believe they put uh, Salim from my novels. And, they, did. Uh, they did. Yeah, I worked with them a little bit to add some uh, some novel-based content to that. But uh, no, that was, that was a whole other division of the company uh, and actually licensed with an outside uh, game company. Yeah, Mike, Mike uh, Selinger. Yeah, I'm here with us, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, Mike. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so uh, the truth of the blessing and the curse of a game getting successful is you can no longer touch everything. Right. And that's one of those things that either uh, will break you or really delight you. And I feel like learning how to, you know, I, I've seen people really get consumed by they create something and then it starts to grow beyond them and they just feel like, star systems are slipping through their fingers. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, but if you can just build a team of cool people who have good ideas and then sit back and let yourself be surprised and delighted, um, I think that's that's the best. You know, and actually, I something that I like about the Starfinder process when we were creating that, you know, I say that was the most grueling year, um, but I also think it was really... Uh, it was really nice that I had a team where I could just 
trust everybody on that team to make cool stuff. And we all kind of had to trust each other. Um, and I think that that lends itself to better design. You know, people, whenever I talk about creative direction, you know, I think the, the value of a creative director is in how little you can say no. Like the more you can say yes and, you know, get the best work out of your people um, rather than trying to make everything your vision, I think the stronger the property is going to be. And, uh, and also that means that when you do have to say, what if we did it like this? Um, people are a lot less likely to be hurt by it if you approved their other ideas, which were actually cool, you know? So I think uh, being a good manager often means relinquishing control. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time with us today. It's been really awesome. We've got to cover. I was worried early when we came on. I mentioned, I was like, there's so much stuff to talk about. I don't know <laughs> if we'll get to it all. And you know what we got? I think we got to pretty much all of it. So that, that's awesome. Good, good. It's awesome. And it was in a good way. Of course, we had the one little flip-flop with somebody uh, with the sound, which we fixed, by the way. I'm pretty sure it got fixed. Uh, found out where that was at. Um, you are on Twitter at James L. Sutter. Yes. Are you on are you on Facebook publicly? You have a, a page. You know, well? I really stopped using Facebook. So like I'm there, but <laughs> the description says I never use Facebook. <laughs> I always feel bad because people will send me messages and I don't see it until a year later because I literally log in once a year to check. Wow. Um, Twitter is really where I hang out um, or my website at uh, jameslsutter.com. You can find my contact info there. But in general, Twitter is where I'm uh, spending way too much time. Yeah. And you have all of your other, other interviews, your writing excuses, everything on that is listed on one nice little, nice little page location. Uh, it's, it's a really nice website, by the way. Oh, thank easy, you. Easy, thank you. Easy to get around to where you want to go. If you want to find something, it's like, I go here and then I go here and then I'm there. That's, a, that's good to know. Cause I definitely like, we built that a long time ago. Um, and you know, uh, it's, I am not a website, uh, web dev at all. And so I've been fortunate enough to have some friends help me, you know, fix it up, but. Awesome. Well, it's been great having you with us. I very much appreciate it. To everybody listening, thank you for listening to Epic Realms. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. Have a great night, everyone. And thank you. Thank you. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back. And join us again for Epic Realms. <laughs> <laughs>